Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. In the military, we conduct what we call guard mount. Some of you have been there. Some of you have done it. You know what happens. The sergeant of the guard gathers all of those that are changing shift and will be sentinels around the camp, and he gives them instructions. They are to have memorized their general orders. In the Army and the Air Force, there are three of them. And in the sea services, there are 11 of them. But they essentially say the same thing. You are to guard your post and... Implicit in that is, prepare to give your life to defend it. Guard your post and not quit until you are properly relieved. And then you're to follow the general orders that you know and any special orders that are given at the guard mount. And if there are any problems, you are to get in touch with your sergeant of the guard. So go back with me about 30 years. I'm in the desert in Saudi Arabia. We've been to about six camps that day. It's in February, it's freezing cold. We pull up to a camp with the sand berm around it. There's one place of entry. I'm in a cut V with Master Sergeant Tom Shannon, who is our chaplain assistant. We pull up far enough, and then you know how it goes. I think you probably know how it goes. The first command that you get from the guard is what? Does anyone know? Halt! Who goes there? And then you respond. Well, we were in a vehicle, so we kind of flickered our lights, you know. And he then says, advance and be recognized. So we drove up. We come to the gate. He looked down and he saw the cross on my lapel. He saw that he saw my rank too. He saw my name because he flashed a, a flashlight on. He said, oh, you're Chaplain Spidey. But he'd never seen me before. But he recognized me, you see, as the chaplain of the 383rd Quartermaster Battalion. Recognized, but I still didn't get admission. Dragon. Dragon what? I look at Tom and say, that's the sign, Tom. What's the countersign? The challenge, is it dragonfly, dragon den, dragon lair? What? So he pulls out his little book because we'd gotten instructions that morning that the password and the challenge and this countersign had changed. And it was dragonfly. So we said, fly. And he then went over, unlocked the gate, and he let us pass through. Well, what's the moral of that story? There was just one entry point, not multiple entry points, not different ways to get in. There was one sentry, one guard, who stood there with the authority. He was a specialist for Tom Shannon outranked him by four grades, and I by a few more. But no matter the rank, he had the authority of the commander. By the way, I outranked the commander of that post. He had the authority of the commander not to let anyone in unless they knew the proper countersign, the password. And then he unlocked the gate, and we entered. You see, nobody, regardless of rank, has passage into the camp unless they know after having been recognized as a part of that, what the entry code is. You know, in Matthew, the 16th chapter, 
Jesus says much the same thing to Peter. What does it mean when he says to Peter after he tells him that upon your faith that you have exhibited, I will build my church, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The fathers reveal this to you, not flesh and blood. And then he says, and I give you the what? The keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatsoever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. There's a lot of controversy about what that means. I think what it means is this. In fact, that which had been secret, a secret code for years, unknown through the millennia, was revealed through Jesus Christ. And he was telling Peter, now you're the sentinel, you're the guard, but part of your responsibility isn't to keep it a secret, it's to broadcast it. And if you do, and if people believe in me, and they know the name of Jesus Christ and him as Lord and Savior, they have entrance. You see, that's the password. And if they don't, if you don't share it, they will be bound and they will not be free. So did Peter live up to that obligation? Yes. In Acts, the fourth chapter, by this time, he has preached his first Pentecostal sermon with great power. He has presented the gospel which includes the death, burial, and resurrection of the Messiah, the Lord that was sent to save them. And he looked at him and said, and you killed him. And God raised him up. What then should we do, they ask? And he answered by, of course, saying what? Repent, and each of you be what? Baptized. For you have been forgiven of your sin. It says, for the forgiveness of sin. What that means is, because of the forgiveness is there, and you will be saved. No, it says what? And you will receive the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the sign you see that one is saved. 3,000 responded and they were baptized almost immediately and they began to meet in the homes, small groups and homes. He performed a powerful miracle, uh, Peter did with John then, a day or so later, right outside the temple. He, through the power of Jesus' name, raised the lame beggar that could not walk and could not have walked for years. And then he preached a second sermon right there in the temple courts, right there in front of all of the religious leaders, and some of them are in the crowd. And there was a great disturbance in Jerusalem, and then up to 5,000 then were added. Another 2,000 were added to the church. You see, the religious leaders are concerned. This is causing a problem. It's causing a disturbance. And so they arrested Peter, and they arrested John, and it was because they were preaching this message. What is the code? The password is Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. And if you repent of your sins and believe in him, you will be forgiven and then show that by baptism. And so they called them before what we call the Sanhedrin, all of the religious leaders, not just those in the Sanhedrin, but apparently even more than those in Jerusalem. And they stood in front of that group. Now, you need to see the picture. You've got Pharisees, Sadducees, you've got scribes, you've got people with different perspectives about what heaven it is, whether you go to heaven or not, the concepts vague in the Old Testament, and then how to get there. So there were varied opinions about this, and they were divided. And we find this later when Paul stood before the same, same Sanhedrin years later. And then they challenged them. They said, okay, by what name and through which power are you doing these mighty acts? And God's people stood for the reading of the word and his answer from Acts, the fourth chapter. God's people here stood for the reading of the word. Acts, the fourth chapter, beginning in verse 8. Then Peter, 
filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of, of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He, that is Jesus Christ, is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And he gave them the password. Let's be seated. You see, the modern challenge is this. In a pluralistic setting, pluralistic environment, and also a society riddled with relativism of postmodernity, the answer is this. All paths, you see, lead to God. That's okay. There's not much difference between any religions. It begins with postmodern relativism, as we've said, from the beginning of this series in apologetics that we conclude today. The idea is that there's no single ultimate objective truth out there. No religion possesses absolute truth, even the best of the religions. And we cannot tell which religion is better than any other one. This is what I would call theological pluralism. And I need to draw a distinction here between theological pluralism and religious pluralism. Theological pluralism is a philosophic and theological concept advocated by such as John Hick in the 20th century, just passed away early in the 21st century, an English theologian and philosopher who taught theological pluralism. Now, religious pluralism is this. Each religion has a right to exist alongside the others, and we support that idea. Everybody ought to be able to practice their religion according to their conscience in a free society. That's religious pluralism. But theological pluralism is this idea that all religions are true to some degree, and they all have similar ethical standards, and, and one might, might just be better than the others, but they're all adequate. They all get us to God. And it rejects the idea that any single religion can claim exclusive possession of the truth. So the charge is against Christianity because we are, in that respect, exclusive. And I'm going to define what I mean by exclusive a little later. It doesn't mean that we exclude anyone. But the truth, we believe, we hold. The charge against us is this. Christ wasn't really special. Uh, he was special, but he wasn't, he wasn't in the fullest New Testament sense of the word. He was, he was a good man an exceptionally good man. He was an enlightened and powerful teacher, and he set a great moral example. But in the New Testament sense, they would not affirm this. He was not the God-man, not fully God, not fully man, who sacrificed himself on the cross for the atonement of your and my sins. He is not the resurrected Lord who sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, who reigns even now supernaturally over all creation and makes intercession for us at the right hand of God so that we might have access when we pray as we did this morning with our prayer of confession. No, he was special, but he was not God-man. So you see, we're on our own to apply his teachings, to follow his example, and by doing so, maybe we can transform society. 
So the, the charge is about, about Jesus is that he is not truly unique. He's special, but he's not truly unique. There's a second charge, and that is that all religions somehow lead to God, theological pluralism. And there is a third charge against Christians, and it is that we are unreasonable. We are unreasonable in our claims that we draw from Scripture, and they would say that we're exclusivistic in as much as we want to omit people. Take a look at the first charge, that Jesus is, is special, but he's not really the God-man and the atone, atoning sacrifice for our sins. Well, we covered this about five weeks ago, so I'm not going to spend much time on it. We talked about then he is the only way. And remember, we talked about the way, the truth, and the life. Our response then was he is unique. The scripture tells us that he is unique. We know that he is unique because his spirit dwells in us and bears witness to that. He's unique in his identity. He is indeed the eternal Son of God who became incarnate through the virgin birth. He is the Word of God that was there before there was anything, through whom everything was made, by which all things were made. And he became flesh. He became incarnate. He is unique in his, his identity because he's the perfect, absolutely perfect God-man sacrifice for our sins. No one has ever done that. And he is unique in his person because he's resurrected Lord today who reigns supernaturally over all salvation and offers us eternal salvation. So he's unique, you see, in his identity. He's unique in his works. He taught with authority like no one has ever taught. They were amazed at his teaching. He performed more miracles, powerful miracles, than anyone ever in history has done. He identifies with us personally like no God would ever identify with humans. He cares for you. He suffers with us. He is unique in that respect. Gods do not suffer for humans. He forgives. And the religious officials looked at him when he forgave the man who was the palsied man on the pallet. And the first thing Jesus did was he said, son, your sins are forgiven before he healed him. And they said, only God can forgive sin. That's right. He's unique in that respect. He can and he does forgive sin. He obeys the Father like no one ever has, perfectly, absolutely, doing the Father's complete will. He saves by offering himself. He paid the price for your sin and my sin on the cross. And he put sin to death on the cross. No one has ever done that. And he redeems. He not only purchases us from sin and death, but he also purchases all of creation and it will be redeemed someday when he comes back, no one can make that claim. And he even intercedes today at the right hand of God, as we said. And there, thereby, we have access to the throne of grace for, for the forgiveness of sin. No one, no one can approach what he did in his works. He is unique in those. And he is superior also in his uniqueness to all other religious leaders. You'll remember that we said he's superior in his identity, fully God, fully man. Mohammed was not, Moses was not. His behavior, his perfect moral character, they all fell short just as we do with feet of clay as humans. We have our sins and they did too, but Jesus Christ perfectly obeyed the Father as the Son of God, but also the Son of Man in the flesh. And he also is superior in his teachings. His deep insights and his influence have affected all of humanity, all cultures around the globe for 2,000 years. He is truly, truly unique. He is not just special. 
He is the God-man who sacrificed himself for you and me. The second charge is beyond he is the way, the truth, and the life is our answer to the first one. Beyond that is that all religions do lead to the same, same God, you see. The Christian doctrine opposes that idea. And it's based in, we, call, we say salvation, but I want to broaden it to redemption. You see, we, we understand the scripture to tell the story of redemption from Genesis through Revelation. It's bigger than just salvation of individuals. It's the redemption of all creation which has fallen. God is sovereign. God is supernatural. God is personal. And he reigns over his creation, but he also intervenes in his creation to redeem it and to restore the fallen creation to what he intended it to be. But then there's this special aspect of redemption, and that is salvation. He has broken into history through his son Jesus Christ, the Father's son, and he has then offered eternal salvation to us. And what does that mean? How would we define Christian salvation as a base? When we're challenged about having this exclusive message, what are we saying? So today I want to talk specifically about the uniqueness of salvation. Five weeks ago we talked about the uniqueness of Christ. What is unique about Christian salvation is proclaimed by Jesus Christ and it was preached by Peter and the apostles. I would define it this way. The Son, Jesus Christ, redeems us. You see, he has purchased us from sin and death by his sacrifice on the cross, and he has been resurrected to gain victory over death, and death will be the final enemy that is vanquished when he returns. So you see, the son redeems. The father then does what? He graciously pardons. Pardon and forgiveness of sin, and ultimately salvation comes only by grace, and it's the father's grace. And then the Holy Spirit regenerates. He regenerates those who enter into a relationship with the Father by believing in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And the relationship with God is restored. We receive the gift of eternal life that it just isn't just about then someday, but it begins now. It transforms our life now and it sets us free from the obligation to sin and the punishment of death, even now, but it continues into eternity. And we do this by repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, and we obey him, and we follow him, and we have a personal salvation where we have a personal identity in heaven. There's some key points of differentiation between this and what I'm about to talk about very briefly about what other, other religions believe. First of all, this salvation is a Trinitarian process. You heard me say, the Son redeems the Father pardons, the Holy Spirit regenerates. They participate together. There is no other faith apart from the Christian theistic faith that proclaims that. Salvation is by God's grace and not by works. Salvation is a restored relationship with God. Salvation is eternal life beginning now with personal identity into eternity and beyond. Salvation is a certainty. The scripture affirms to us that if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if we confess him with our mouth and we believe that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved, we have eternal life, and we have that forever. And it's certain. It's not ambiguous. Salvation comes then only through whom? Salvation comes only through whom? Say it louder. Jesus Christ who is the God-man redemptive sacrifice. So that differentiates 
from what other people say. What about these other pathways that supposedly lead to God? Well, the deists say that we don't have a personal relationship with God. He's not involved in his creation. And we're rewarded or punished in the afterlife based on what? On our works. So you see two points of differentiation. Pantheists say that we are reincarnated and we continue to be reincarnated until we're released from this body and we then or anybody, and our souls merge with the cosmos and we lose our individual identity. So you see there are two points of differentiation there. Panentheists say that God is impersonal. He is the mind of the universe and the universe is his body. And salvation is this. When you die, God will remember you if you were good and God will forget you if you were bad. Naturalists, naturalists say that all that exists is matter, material. So we are simply cells, we're flesh, we're flesh and blood, bones and neurons. There is no soul. So when we die, we just cease to exist. We don't survive. And of course, this is advocated by atheists and, and most agnostics. Polytheists believe our destiny is determined by the gods, maybe a god or many gods, according to what they choose to be our fate or fortune. And if we are good and they choose to save us, we will be divinized and we will become like gods. And if not, if we're wicked and they choose by fate or fortune not to save us, we will either suffer a finite punishment or maybe infinite punishment and what might be called hell. And finally, relativists, that is, postmodernity says, you can't tell. No final determination can be made. We're, we're open to any solution. Openness is embraced, and everyone's belief must be considered, and we must be respectful of those to the point that everybody's opinion is satisfactory, and it leads us ultimately to the same God. Uh, after all, it's unreasonable to be dogmatic about your beliefs, you see, Christians. Other major religions differ also from what we believe. Islam says that there is no personal relationship with Allah. He is ineffable. He is indescribable. He is so transcendent, he is beyond reach. Salvation is uncertain for Muslims. Only God knows who will be saved. And salvation is based on works by measuring obedience to Allah. And there are graded rewards, tangible physical rewards in paradise. This does not sit consistent with the Christian message. Hinduism, after many reincarnations, souls will be released from this life. We build up karma and then we're reincarnated based on that karma. But eventually the souls will then be released from any physical body and they'll, mer they'll merge with a Brahman into an impersonal ultimate reality, not personal identity. Rewards and punishments will be based on karma as we go from one reincarnation to the other. Buddhism, also after many reincarnations, you see, we will be released from suffering. You see, suffering is all around us, and largely it's because we're attached our desire for physical things. And so ultimately, through these reincarnations, we learn how then to be detached from the desires that we have, and ultimately we, we experience a kind of self-annihilation when we merge then into nirvana. And it's based on obedience to the Four Noble Truths and the Eight, path, eight Pathway of Enlightenment. Taoism is like Buddhism and reincarnations. They say, go with the flow, and that's the key in each reincarnation. Go with the flow, go with the yin and the yang, and understand the contradictions of life and work through them until you're released. Judaism, the Old Testament is somewhat vague about the specificity of eternal life. 
and it's the same with Jews today. It depends on the type of Jew that you are, and in fact, what your own individual thoughts are. All believe in some kind of afterlife, but the destiny is based on what? Works. Works righteousness. The Reformed Jew will say it may take a different form. You, you might, you might be, have a spiritual existence afterward, or, or uh, the afterlife might be your influence on your descendants. You see, there's no literal physical resurrection with, the reform, with Reformed Judaism. There's no physical hell. And if you want to call it heaven, heaven can be accessed by any good person from any faith, not just Judaism. The Orthodox Jew is a little more narrow in his or her perspective. They believe in a future resurrection, and a messianic redemption. But the method and the destiny varies in Judaism, in Orthodox Judaism. Some say the righteous dead will be resurrected immediately. Some say that they will be reincarnated. Yes, some Jews believe that. And then some say, no, they will sleep and they will wait until the, re the Messiah returns. The wicked, they're divided in their opinion about that. Some Reformed Jews believe that they will be tormented by demons of their own making. Others say, no, they will be annihilated upon death. Look at the Western cults. Each one of them rejects the Trinity and that Trinitarian relationship involved in salvation. Each one of the, quote, Christian cults refuses to acknowledge the deity of Christ. Mormons, salvation is based on Christ's atonement, but it's finally determined by works. Rewards are based on earthly performance, and believers, true believers, ultimately become divinized and will become like God's. Does that sound familiar? Non-believers will have a second chance after death, and the Scripture says nothing about that. Christian scientists believe salvation comes by following Christ's example. It is good works. The thing is, there isn't a place called heaven. There isn't a place called hell. There aren't destinies such as those. Heaven and hell are a state of mind. Jehovah Witnesses, salvation once again is based on Christ's atonement, but once again it's determined by good works. The wicked will be annihilated. A few chosen witnesses, 144,000, whether that's metaphorical or literal, will go to heaven, but the rest of the good followers, faithful followers, will enjoy a life of pleasure in paradise on the eternal earth. Now, how does Christianity differ from all of these? These things, very specifically. Human works are not the source of salvation, only God's grace. We reject the whole idea of reincarnation. It's not scriptural. We will not someday merge with a cosmos. We are not going to become gods. We reject the idea of annihilation as our ultimate destiny. We believe that we can have a personal identity and relationship with God, and that personal identity continues into eternity. Salvation is not a matter of fate or fortune. It's a matter of God's grace and our responding through repentance and being forgiven. We reject the idea of self-serving, tangible rewards in heaven. And it, the scripture is not ambiguous about salvation. We have a certain hope of eternal life if we believe what it says. And there are not several ways to be saved. Jesus Christ is the only way. So I think we could say that all paths, at least according to what we understand from scripture, do not lead to God. They have different gods, they have different paths, but they lead everywhere else apart from to God, God the Father Almighty.
So what about the last charge? Are Christians unreasonable then in maintaining these ideas? We're charged with being arrogant, know-it-alls. We're charged with being intolerant and bigoted, prejudiced. We're charged with being judgmental. We condemn others who don't believe as we do and being insensitive and not caring for others who may have a very sincere faith. What about being arrogant? Christians do not claim to have all the answers. If you ever hear a preacher that tells you he's going to preach to you the full counsel of God and that's everything that you need to know, walk out the back door because not a single one of us knows the full counsel of God. There's only one who does, and it's the Holy Spirit that delves into the things of God, and it's revealed through Jesus Christ. We do not have all the answers, but we do possess the essential truths about God and redemption given to us in Scripture. Other other religions have valid teachings. We admit that. Hinduism, for example, their idea that there is an end to this bodily life, and it's not the end of us. This life is transitory. There's something more. A respect for the sanctity of all life. What we do in this life will affect us in the afterlife. We, 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 we agree with that. Buddhism, suffering is a basic part of this life. There's no question. And some of it is attached to our desire. Not all of it, but suffering's real. And some of it is because we're unreasonably attached to things. Yeah. Taoism, the pathway. We do need to be a little more connected with nature as they teach. We should follow their example of compassion and humility and moderation toward others. And I hope as Christians we do. Islam teaches correctly that there's only one God and he created this world and he is ultimately supreme and he's transcendent. He's ultimate holiness. We understand that. He is ineffable. We cannot explain everything about God. We should submit to him absolutely and obey his commands. And human society is in chaos because we do not follow his law. We just do not believe he's Allah. Allah is not God of the Old and the New Testament. Judaism teaches correctly that God reveals himself in the Old Testament, that God's law is the right way to live, and the prophecies about the coming Messiah very clearly are accurate, and the difference is they've been fulfilled. We're not intolerant. You're not just arrogant. Other people have beliefs that are are, are valid. We're not intolerant. We're not bigoted against people who differ from us, or we shouldn't be. We respect every person's right to worship and believe. That's religious pluralism, but it's not not theological pluralism. Folks, we we, we, we may not be intolerant, but we are biased. We are biased. You see, we're committed to one set of beliefs, and against all others that differ from it. We favor what we understand to be God's truth revealed in his word. We are biased toward that. And we believe this, in sincerity and honesty and with integrity, other religions do not have the essentials of salvation in their sacred writings. So we're biased in that respect. We're not judgmental. We should judge no person. Jesus told us that. Judge not unless ye be judged. We do not judge others. Only God judges And he has then invested that power in his son, Jesus Christ. But about judgment, we do believe, we learn from Scripture, that God's judgment is coming. We see that in his word. We learn how to judge and discern between God's truth and that which is false. So we do judge there. And then when we discover what the judgment of God is that is coming down the road, we warn people about it. We're we're obliged to do it. When people do not see that judgment coming, 
we stand forward and warn them about it. We're not judgmental, but we proclaim the judgment of God. We are not insensitive. We do care about other persons, or we should. We care about them not just for eternity, not just, quote, saving their souls. We don't save them. God does. But it's not just about saving their souls for eternity. We care about them for here and now. We pray for them here and now. Paul tells Timothy to pray for all men, pray for all of the leaders, so that we can have a society that under God then is peaceful. But then the objective, you see, is very clear in 1 Timothy 2. He says, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all persons to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. We do that for the very purpose, you see, of caring for people so that they might come to know the Lord. You see, mm, we're charged with being unreasonable. Are we unreasonable? Are we unreasonable? I would answer yes, we are. Not arrogant, not intolerant, not insensitive, but we are unreasonable. You see, the gospel is beyond reason in human terms. For the word of the cross, the preaching of the cross, is what foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. You see, that's unreasonable. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, in a fairly lengthy passage that says, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. You see, it defies reason. If we were to invent a way to save people from scratch and we'd never read the scripture, we would have never invented the idea of God becoming man and paying the price for your and my sin. It would be a works-oriented salvation. And you see this idea as a stumbling block. He says that in 1 Corinthians. It is a stumbling block to the Jew and it is a scandal to the Greeks. And Jesus himself said this. He looked at him and he said, what then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, the stone, not many stones, the stone which the builders rejected, this has become the chief cornerstone. You see, the main stone, the cornerstone, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls... It will scatter him like dust. It becomes a stumbling stone to those who feel like it must be reasonable. The correct response to this message, Paul tells us, and, and the context of, of the stumbling stone is found in Romans, the ninth chapter. The answer is faith. We must believe this, even as unreasonable as it sounds, because they do not pursue righteousness by faith, but as though it were by works, salvation by works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written. Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. So yes, we are unreasonable. Let me summarize then a response to this last charge of unreasonableness. The gospel of salvation is uniquely true. But the gospel doesn't exclude anyone. You see, the message is exclusively true but it's not exclusivistic. It doesn't exclude anyone. God desires, what did he tell Timothy, Paul? Tell Timothy. He desires everyone to be saved. But salvation comes through faith and repentance, faith in Jesus Christ and repentance of our sins and the grace of God. It does not come through relativism. Because Christians care, we must preach no other gospel. There's only one real truth. 
And it's not just a concept. There's only one real truth, and it is he, Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Now let me close with this. How do we apply this? There is a bankruptcy in the current theological pluralism that is rampant in postmodern society. It leads to some false assumptions. One of those is that all religions are equally good and right. Another is it's okay if you're born into a certain religion just to stick with that religion randomly. And another false assumption is that, well, religion is just a matter of personal taste. Whatever you want, what, what, what floats your boat. All religions we have suggested, and I believe we've proven from Scripture, are not equally good and right. Each one is uniquely different. Each one worships a different God with different destinies, with mutually exclusive practices that teach contradictory truths so they don't all lead to the same place, and we're left with this choice. Either none of them is right, and atheism is, is, is correct, or only one of them can be right not all of them. The second erroneous assumption is it's okay if you're born into a religion just to stick with that and go with the flow. It's like the Samaritan woman at the well. She would have done that if she had not had the encounter with Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's one of the purposes of that story in John, the fourth chapter. You see, that's complacency, and it's also irrational. It, 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 we, we, it, if we're in that situation, we never come to a point of discerning truth. We're lazy mentally and spiritually. And it ignores the gravity of indecision about matters of eternal consequence. And then finally, it is wrong for us to think that religion is just a matter of personal taste. We make a personal decision, but if religion is a matter of personal taste, that's just no, nothing but egocentricity. It's all about me and my, and folks, we live in a me and my society today. We live in a self-focused society. We live in a society who choose to go to church or not go to church based on how they feel and what they like. We even have some people who call themselves Christians that decide to choose the church they attend based on their liking rather than the call of God. You see, this opposes the true purpose of religion, to focus beyond ourself upon the eternal person of God, to submit ourselves to God and to come to Him in worship and to depart in worship and service and spirit and truth and have a living relationship with Him. Let me close with this final statement. The Christian response to all of this is very clear. God came incarnate as Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. Christ died to pay for your sins and my sins and to conquer death. God raised him from the dead and he still lives. We are saved by God's grace and not by works. We must repent of our sins and believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior, our forgiver, and our leader and our Lord. And the Holy Spirit forms a personal relationship with us and God then. And salvation comes to us only through the person of Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other name under heaven that has been given unto men whereby we must be saved. Let me make one last and final and important statement. This is not just a shibboleth. You know the story about the shibboleth, right? The Gileadites under Jephthah had fought against the Ephraimites, and the Ephraimites were about to cross back over the river into their own territory. And the Gileadites then had a password that they had to be able to pronounce. Shibboleth. 
And of course, the Ephraimites couldn't say it. What could they say? Sibboleth, Sibboleth. And so when they advanced to be recognized and they responded with a password, they knew that they were not truly of Gilead. We stand as sentinels, not to pass judgment on people, folks, but we stand as sentinels and guards of the kingdom of heaven to proclaim to others that the password is Jesus Christ. And he gave us this warning. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of the Father in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons? Did did we not perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I what? I know you not. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. What is the point? We may know the password up here, but knowing the name of Jesus Christ, being able to pronounce it, even walking the aisle, even being baptized, even teaching Sunday school, even singing in the choir, even preaching from the pulpit, if we do not know Jesus Christ in an intimate and personal way that leads to obedience, because we have been forgiven and redeemed and freed through the power and the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. If we have not experienced that, we will stand at the judgment seat proclaiming, Lord, Lord, we did all these great things for you. It's not about what we do for him. It's what about he does for us. And my question for you this morning and those of you who are listening online, have you believed in your heart of hearts Do you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord? Do you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead? And that if you do that and you follow him as Lord and Savior, you have eternal life. That is a unique message that no other faith teaches, which is found and rooted in God's word. Would you pray with me? Father, our prayer this morning is that we will not just pronounce shibboleths, that we will not just say the right thing, but we will respond with our heart and we will follow your son Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, who is our resting place. Thank you, Lord, that you have helped us to find a resting place in him. In Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gamble Street Baptist Church has six church goals to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.